Tonight we're going to look at Zephaniah 1, verses 2 and 3. So you may want to have your Bible open to that place. We've already experienced the literary and rhetorical skill of the prophet Zephaniah. When we examined the superscription, or the first verse, in handout number two of this series. You may recall that we noted the inclusio that surrounds this prophetic book. That is, that the words of Zephaniah in these three chapters are framed by the word of the Lord. Beginning verse and the ending verse of this prophetic text. We also noted that there were some alliterative and assonantial patterns in that first verse in the Hebrew version. Patterns of literary artistry, rhetorical artistry, phonetic artistry, which ties the prophet Zephaniah into the royal line of David through King Hezekiah who was explicitly mentioned in that first verse. We have, therefore, a skilled literary and rhetorical artist before us who also is a royal ancestral prophet. That is, he has a royal ancestral pedigree. Now, as uh, we turn our attention to the details of the first chapter, I want to pay tribute to two particular works which I think capture some of the artistry of Zephaniah. One, a Ph.D. dissertation, and the other, a book written by a man who has taught uh, English as well as theology. I can still recall my first reading of Ivan Ball's dissertation done at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California in 1972. I read it in the 1970s, and I recall saying, this is the way the Hebrew Bible ought to be examined and studied. It was a marvelous piece of detailed rhetorical analysis of the prophet Zephaniah and The book, or the dissertation, which became a book, the dissertation still stands as a watershed in Zephaniah's studies because it changed the paradigm. That is, what Ball did in this dissertation was show that the book of Zephaniah was an integral whole, rhetorically compact. And he also showed that there was no need to amend the Hebrew text, which is a popular pastime of Hebrew liberal scholars. They want to change the Hebrew text because they don't think it fits their presuppositions or they don't like the word and they think there ought to be a different word there and so on and so forth. So they put little footnotes at the bottom of the page of the Hebrew Stuttgartensia and and note how they've amended the received text. Ball made an insurmountable case for the original Masoretic text. You may ask, can any good thing come out of Berkeley? Well, there is one good thing that came out of Berkeley. Now, the second work is by Paul House, who is now teaching at Beeson University in Birmingham, Alabama. 
<clears throat> when he wrote this book, Zephaniah, Prophetic Drama, 1988, he was teaching at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. Now, <clears throat> House's book is a literary study uh, on the basis of a dramatic dialogue between God and the prophet. He attempts to distinguish the <clears throat> speech of God and the response of the prophet through these three chapters and notes that there's a, dialogue, a dramatic a dialogue as this speech back and forth unfolds. Now, <clears throat> House's thesis about the dialogue character hasn't been accepted by other scholars, and I think there are some problems with it. <clears throat> but nonetheless, what he does point out is the dramatic style of this literary Hebrew master. And that's the reason <clears throat> that House's book is also a significant contribution to our understanding of the language of the book of the prophet Zephaniah, particularly from the standpoint of dramatic artistry. Now, <clears throat> we're going to look at these two verses tonight, verses 2 and 3 of this first chapter, and <clears throat> consider imagery, artistry, uh, literary, uh, rhetorical style. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to attempt to uh, <clears throat> perceive why these words are here and why they're here in the order in which they appear. So, if you're looking at verse 2, we begin to read, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. And the ruins, or the marginal reading of the New American Standard, the stumbling blocks, along with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, the imagery here is of a particular type. What is the type of imagery that he is using? He's describing what? Describing destruction. Of what? I want more broad. More, well, more specific. <laughs> this is creation imagery, is it not? This is creation imagery. Now, what is the pattern of this creation imagery as you see the order in which he lists it? Art, your head is nodding. Oh, go ahead, Robert. Uh, it's uh, very much like uh, in the book of Hebrews where it's creation done backwards. Okay. This is a reverse order of creation in Genesis 1. He begins with man and he moves backwards to the fish of the sea. Genesis 1 begins with the fish of the sea and moves forward to man. Why does he do this? Why does he create or describe a reverse order of creation? Good. Okay, how extensive is this undoing? Complete. Do you want to give me a, a, a fancy word for that? 
No. Hold on to that for a moment. This is. What did you say, Danny? Plenary? <clears throat> Cosmic. That's the reason I moved uh, before when you said Earth. I wanted something more than Earth, okay? Because this is cosmic reversal, okay? He's describing a complete undoing of the cosmos, of the whole created universe. Now, has this ever been done before? Robert? In Noah's flood. Okay, so there is a retrospective vector here. Whether he's borrowing upon that or not, mm, that's arguable, but it's interesting to reflect upon the fact that God undoes the creation in the days of Noah, does he not? He destroys man and the beasts and many of the birds of the sky and many of the fish of the sea, though he probably didn't destroy all of them because they could have survived in the water, but none of the upheaval probably would have killed many of the aquatic species. Now, is he ever going to do this again? Is God ever going to ever do this again? Robert, your head's nodding. Yeah, at the very end times, but it won't be this way. It won't be this way. Would it be Noah's way? Noah's way was by water. water. What's the last way going to be? By fire. By fire. What, what's your text? <laughs> See, when, when, whenever he has his namesake to cite for a proof text, you see, he jumps right in there. <laughs> it's Second it's Peter 3 in which God describes about describe dissolving the world with a fervent heat. All right, so we have a retrospective aspect to what Zephaniah is talking about. We can look back to the Noahic flood and the destruction of the world by water. We can look forward to the, the parousia, to the consummation and the dissolution of the cosmos by fire in Second Peter 3. <clears throat> This inversion of creation that Zephaniah describes is a decreation. It is an uncreation. Now notice what is happening here. It is a return of creation to its beginning state. The ending then is as its beginning. And that, Professor Sanborn, is an eschatological paradigm. Thank you for anticipating with an eschatological reversal. All right, we're going to come back to that later on, but keep in mind that this reverse decreation, uncreation, is turning the world back to the beginning so that the end will be as the beginning. All right, now in verse 2 and 3, we want to look for structural patterns. And so as you examine those verses, <clears throat> look for repetition, duplication. And what do you notice, first of all? A broom. I, I didn't get it clearly. I'm sorry, Randy. A broom. Gosh, she's a broom sweep. Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> so you're trans... 
The translation that you have doesn't have broom, does it? Now, see, we, we want to pay attention to the text because we want to look for the structure that comes out of the text. So, we have the word sweep in some of your translations. Okay, what other word do you have in some of your translations? Or remove, okay? All right, now, where do you see uh, those words occur? Either sweep, sweep away, or remove. Do you see one in verse 2? Yes. Okay. Do you see it in verse 3? Yes. How many times do you see it in verse 3, Bob? You see it twice. All right, so that's the reason for on your handout, the first blank line is verse 2. And actually, there's a little qualification with that, but we'll see it later, a little later on. And then in verse 3, you have that same verb duplicated. It's there twice. This is obviously a structural repetition. He's done this intentionally. This is part of his literary artistry. All right, now, do you notice any other repetition? <clears throat> Marge, your head's nodding. I will. Mm. Very good. Okay. From the face of the earth and finish it off, okay? Finish it off. There, you see, declares the Lord is also duplicated. All right, so that's your longer line on your handout with the question mark before another repetition. From the face of the earth declares the Lord. So we have two types of symmetrical duplication here. We have a verb, remove or sweep away, and we have a phrase which terminates with declares the Lord. Now, with respect to that second longer clause, from the face of the earth declares the Lord, it appears where? Now, what, am I, what I'm asking there is... In what position is that clause in the verse in which it appears? It is at the end of the verse, isn't it? In both places, verse 2 and 3, where from the face of the earth declares the Lord appears, it appears at the end of the verse. So what do we call this kind of a pattern where we have the same thing occurring in parallel fashion in verses. And inclusio, good guess, but no. Now, why not? Why is it not an inclusio? Let's keep our finger in Zephaniah 1, and let's turn to the easiest place in the Bible to see an inclusio or inclusios, to Psalm 146 and following. So, let's go back to Psalm 146. And as you look at the psalm, tell me where the inclusio is. Go ahead, Lois. At the beginning and the end. And what are the words? Praise the Lord. Very good. So, an inclusio is where, Lois? At the beginning and the end. At the beginning and the end. And in Zephaniah 2, 1, 2, and 3, is it at the beginning and the end? No, it's at the end. It's at the end. All right. So, it's not an inclusio, is it? Right. Now, pardon? Yes, the whole book has an inclusio, but these two verses do not. 
So it reminds us that he's using something here, okay? Or at least he appears to be using something here, but it is not labeled an inclusio. And if you still have your finger in one, Psalm 146, you'll notice that the last five psalms, 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, all have inclusio. They all begin with hallelujah, that's the Hebrew, and they end with hallelujah. Five inclusio psalms. That's the easiest place to see an inclusio in the Bible. There are many other places in the Bible where they occur, but this is an easy place to go to show a person that it's actually a literary style. It's an artistic device. All right, so we don't have an inclusio in Zephaniah 2 and 3. Well, perhaps we have an anaphora. Perhaps we have an anaphora. What's an anaphora? Well, those of you who are with me through the series on the Epistle of Jude, if you turn to Jude, keep your finger in Zephaniah 1, and let's review what we learned from the Epistle of Jude, and turn to verse 17 of Jude. And compare verse 17 with verse 20. And what do you observe? But you, beloved, they both begin the same way. So, verses 17 to 19 are initiated by the same phrase, but you, beloved. Verses 20 to 23 are initiated by the same phrase, but you, beloved. So here is a symmetrical parallel in which the beginning of two successive units, two successive multiple verse units, are initiated by the very same phrase. And that's, as we learned from Jude, that is an anaphora. An anaphora, A-N-A-P-H-O-R-A. Well, is that what we have in Zephaniah 1, 2, and 3? Pardon? Apparently, do these uh, verses begin with the same phrase? They end with the same phrase. So what do we call a literary device or a rhetorical device in which units are parallel, ending with the ending uh, symmetry? That is, there is the exact same phrase at the end of two units or in two verses. No, you have never had that before. So you're learning something new about rhetorical device. This is called an epiphora. An epiphora, E-P-I-P-H-O-R-A. An epiphora in which parallel units end with the same symmetrical duplication. All right, so we had an opportunity to review inclusio. And as Lois pointed out a little earlier, we do have an inclusio around the whole book of Zephaniah. And we uh, raised the question about the symmetry here in verses 2 and 3. Is it an anaphora? No, it is not an anaphora. We have a good example of that in the epistle of Jude. We also have a good example of it in the letter to the Hebrews. Chapter 11 of Hebrews begins each successive verse with by faith, by faith, by faith. And so it goes. That's an anaphoric paradigm. Literary paradigm in the epistle to the Hebrew, Hebrews 11. 
But this device, which occurs frequently in Hebrew poetry, is labeled an epiphora, a repetition of the very same clause or phrase at the end of successive units. Any questions? All right, now, this is an intentional use of rhetoric. This is an intentional use of literary artistry. So we want to uh, push forward a little bit and see if we can discern what it is that's behind the prophet's inspired intentional use of this imagery. So we're going to set up four successive lines, which are going to include all of verse 2 and 3. Now, verse 2, as you've noticed, has one, two, three, four blanks to fill in. And as you look at the verse, the long line would be what we've already labeled an anaphora, namely, from the face of the earth declares the Lord. That would be the right-hand long line that you can fill in, which leaves three other shorter lines. Now, the beginning of the verse, as you indicated before, has the word sweep or sweep away or remove. But in fact, in the original Hebrew text, that word is repeated. The first two words of Zephaniah 1-2 are a repetition of the word remove or sweep. Now, we didn't notice that up above because I was simply drawing your attention to the duplication of the verb. But now we want to look at how he does it. And although this is uh, somewhat disputed, what he is doing is using an infinitive absolute in the Hebrew grammar. What does that mean? It means that he repeats the same verb form, but he repeats it in such a way as a literal, transla- a literal translation would go something like this. Removing, I will remove. So the verb appears twice in the Hebrew text. The English only translates it once. But in the Hebrew, it is duplicated. The first two words of the verse are the very same Hebrew root or Hebrew lemma. So when uh, an infinitive absolute is used, it means, as some of your translations may actually read in English, I will utterly remove. I will completely remove. The infinitive absolute is an expression of thoroughgoing action of the verb. Yes, Randy? That infinitive absolute is used both verse 2 and verse 3? No, just verse 1, verse 2. Okay? The uh, same verb is used in verse 2, but it is not used with the infinitive absolute construction. The verbs are separated. So when you have the Hebrew verb back-to-back, it usually has the form of an infinitive absolute, which means this thoroughgoing or utter removal. So once again, a literal translation of the Hebrew. Removing or sweeping away, I will sweep away or remove. David? 
I suspect that what the definitive absolute use for God warrant Adam I'm not sure. You may be right about that, but I'd have to check it. Does Scott know the answer to that one? No, no sorry. Okay. Uh, bug me about that, David, and I'll, I'll, I'll check it for you. Now, <clears throat> yes, go ahead. Question? Uh, I thought I knew what this verb was, but because this is a technical question, obviously, but since both begin with an olive, why would the infinitive, the olive usually indicates I will Um, I, I can't answer that. I'm only going on the basis of the parsing. Okay, that's all right. uh, the second form of the uh, uh, safe is a what they think is a hifil. So uh, there is a debate about the precise analysis of this, but I, I think, as you know, in Hebrew generally, where you have the verb right next to itself, generally it's an infinitive absolute. Oh, yeah, it seems like that. Yeah. All right, now back to your outline. <clears throat> so for that number one, we want to put remove and then remove again, or sweep away and then sweep away again. And then your third little short line there would be all. So remove, remove all from the face of the earth. Now in verse 2, we also have a series of clauses. And we noticed, as we commented, that the word remove or sweep away occurs two more times. Interesting that he uses that verb twice in verse 2, and then he uses it twice in verse 3. He doesn't use it with the same grammatical force, but nonetheless, he still uses the form of the Hebrew verb Four times, twice in two, twice in three. So for number two on your outline, he says he's going to remove what, first of all? Man and beast. Man and beast. Okay. Second, he says he's going to remove what? Birds. And fish. All right. So number two, remove man and beast. Number three on your outline, remove birds and fish. Number four, why do I have the parentheses there? The verb is implied. It's not repeated again. So it be understood that remove is also involved. He's continuing with the same thought. So what's he going to remove in number four? Stumbling blocks with the wicked or stumbling blocks wicked. Uh, this is an interesting Hebrew construction again. We'll talk a, a little bit about it in a moment. And cut off man. So stumbling blocks wicked and cut off man. And the line underneath the number four, from the face of the earth declares the Lord, which is parallel to from the earth declares the Lord in verse two up above. All right, so we've separated out the clauses of uh, verse two 
and verse 3, we've noted the duplication and we've noted the symmetry. The symmetry of verse 2 at its ending clause and verse 3 at its ending clause, the anaphora of parallelism. All right, now let's take a look at these clauses. We're on page 2 of your handout. Unless you have any questions as we go before we go on. Now let's take a look at these clauses using some of the qualities of Hebrew poetry. In fact, this is poetic expression. Zephaniah is using poetic idiom here. So let's use some of the patterns of Hebrew poetry and see if, you know, it helps us understand why he's doing this. First of all, Hebrew poetry uses a pattern of what is A and what is more than A is B. So let's begin with what is A. In verse 2, what is A? Fill in the blank. I am going to remove all. Yes, I'm going to remove everything. All. The Hebrew Hebrew word is kal, which means all. All right, now in particular, number two, with what is specifically going to be removed vis-a-vis A, and what is particularly going to be removed? Man and beast. Very good. So in addition to all, particularly part of that all is man and beast. And in what is more particular, specifically C, vis-a-vis, that is the relationship to A and B, what comes next? Birds and fish. Very good. And number four, still more particularly, specifically D, what is more than A, B, and C? What are we going to put in there? Stumbling blocks, wicked, and cutting off man. All right, so this is a progression. All right? He is saying, I'm going to remove all. And in particular, I'm going to remove man and beast. And I'm going to progress to birds and fish. <clears throat> birds and fish, and finally to wicked stumbling blocks and wicked man. What kind of a paradigm is this? This is a blank spiral. What kind of a spiral? It is a downward spiral. All right, now keep in mind, we noted when we talked on the first page of our handout about decreation or the inverse creation pattern. Now, here you're seeing it in terms of a downward paradigm. Okay, we've mapped it out with this sequence of what is more than A, B, what is more than A and B, C, what is more than A and B and C, D. This is a downward progression. Is it a moral spiral? Is it a moral spiral, downward spiral? No. Yes. yes, it is. Why, Pete? Good. Because it ends up in wickedness. Yes, it ends up in man's wickedness. Correct. So this is a degeneration spiral as well as a decreation spiral. The stumbling blocks and the wicked are the clues in that fourth line of verse 3, which indicate that we've got a moral downturn. 
Now the question is, how? How do we have a moral downturn? What is the means of this moral downturn? All right, keep your finger in Zephaniah 1, and let's turn back to the prophet Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14, verse 3. Now, I want you, each of you to scan that verse, and I want you to answer the question of how is the moral downturn described? Ezekiel 14.3. Go ahead, Pete, your head's up. Idolatry. Now, notice one other thing about this verse. Okay, I don't know what your versions say if you do not have the New American Standard. But as I've said before, one of the advantages of the New American Standard is it's consistent in the way it translates the Hebrew text. So in this verse, you will notice that idols is in the first line of the translation. But you also have the word stumbling blocks in this verse. And those two words are parallel meaning that the stumbling blocks that Ezekiel is talking about are the idols that the children of Judah are bowing down to. Is it conceivable that Zephaniah is also talking about the same thing? In other words, the stumbling blocks that he is talking about in verse 3 are also idolatrous stumbling blocks. It is very likely, because the Hebrew word which is used here in Zephaniah 3, it's a very strange Hebrew word that is translated stumbling blocks, where some versions have ruins. It's a strange Hebrew word which is always associated with idolatry, as Ezekiel shows you. So Ezekiel 14.3 is the easiest place to see the parallel between the word stumbling block in Hebrew and the word idols in Hebrew. All right, now, if, in fact, Zephaniah is talking about idolatry, and that's what he means by the stumbling blocks of the wicked, and that which is going to produce God's wrath that he's going to cut off man, is Zephaniah possibly suggesting specific or particular idolatry as he details this degeneration, this downward spiral, this decreation. Is he? Is it conceivable that he is actually specifying idols as he's talking about this reverse creation paradigm? He's not only, God's not only turning back the creation, but he's also turning back the creation by allusion to idolatrous representation. Is it conceivable? then what is the idol that man would represent? Or what would an idol representing man be to a Jew in Zephaniah's day? Asherim? Asherim? No. Because the ashram is a wooden pole. 
But you're close. Who is the consort of Asherah? Baal. And how is Baal depicted? No, he is not. Archaeologists have uncovered statues of Baal. How is he depicted? He is depicted as a man holding a lightning bolt in his hand because he is the god of the thunderstorm. Remember when Elijah closes up the heavens, it is the curse on the worship of Baal of Ahab and Jezebel that God will be shown to be more powerful than Baal, who's supposed to be the God of the sky who gives the rain. Elijah says it's not going to rain until my word. Baal is a fertility God who is responsible for fertilizing the earth with water. Okay, so is it conceivable then that there is this representation of the degeneration of uh, uh, Judah in the days of Zephaniah by worshiping images of Baal made as a man, even as archaeology has demonstrated. Is it conceivable? It is possible. Well, then the next, le- the next element here is beasts. Beasts. Now, where would idolatry and beasts uh, kind of prick your brain or your memory? Yes, the golden calf, exactly. When they bow down before the image of a beast. That brings us to the birds. Now, this one's a little trickier. There is no evidence of the worship of birds in the Bible. There is, however, some emerging evidence that the Philistines, the Philistines worshipped birds as such or birds as symbols of other pagan gods. Now, I say that that evidence is beginning to emerge. It's only a few years ago that a book was published in which they were talking about the iconography of the Philistines and noting the fact that they have bird imagery. Well, there was one nation where birds were worshipped. Egypt. Egypt. And who is the god? Toth. Is it Toth? Not Toth. That's the god of death. Isis. Not Isis, but it's his. It's 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 her son. Is it Molech? Not Molech. It is Horus, H-O-R-U-X. Now, most of you have seen Horus, particularly if you've seen Egyptian iconography. What does Horus look like? A winged mammoth. You're not quite there. Okay, remember, this is a bird image. He has the face of a bird. He has the face of a bird. What kind of a bird? An eagle. You're close. A hawk or a falcon. Yes. And so you've seen this picture in uh, from Egyptian uh, tombs of a man below the head, from the shoulders down, with the head of a falcon or a hawk. That's Horus. Okay, now Horus is the god of the sky in Egyptian mythology. He's also the god of war. And the Egyptians did worship that image. The hawk was particularly sacred to them. Yes, Randy? Yeah, the Ten Commandments, that's the, the image 
that uh, in the movie that uh, Pharaoh is worshiping and, and sets his daughter on it or his son on it to hope that he heals it is that image of the bird. Was that a falcon? DeMille did his homework. All right, now that brings us to the last uh, blank on the handout, and we should fill in what word there. <laughs> Kay wants to put Dagon in there. Okay, first of all, we want to put in fish, okay? <clears throat> now, why did, uh, why did you mention Dagon? Mm-hmm. Yes. In First Samuel, he falls on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, it is. Uh, the older books, the older scholars believed that Dagon, D-A-G-O-N, comes from the Hebrew word D-A-G, dog, which means fish. So they associated, in fact, all the way back to Jerome, they associated Dagon with a fish god. So they pictured in that way. In fact, they would draw pictures of it. However, modern scholarship does not believe that Dagon is a fish god. And so they've dismissed this as a misunderstanding of, uh, the, the, of, of the name Dagon, associating it with the, the word D-A-G. Okay? So they're two different concepts. However, Ashkelon which is one of the Philistine cities, one of the five Philistine cities, so-called Philistine Pentapolis, Ashkelon has a deity on their coins that has the tail of a fish. However, that deity does not seem to be identified with Dagon. Nonetheless, there is some indication that in a Philistine city, there was a local city god or a local patron god who had the tail of a fish. Is there any other mythology that has a tail of a fish god? Neptune. Neptune? Or in Greek mythology, what's his name? Triton. Triton. All you little mermaid fans... The Little Mermaid's father is Triton, half man, half fish. And the Little Mermaid is half girl, half fish. She's a mermaid, he's a merman. Yes, so Greek mythology had a god who was a merman, half man, half fish, and that was Triton. Well, in any event, there is enough indication that in some cultures, fish or part fish uh, beings were worshipped or uh, given divine status. Summing up then, what we have here is a possible allusion to worshipping the creature rather than the creator, a la Romans 1, 29, and that Zephaniah is in fact, in this decreasing or decreation or reverse paradigm, he's actually imaging the moral degeneration of mankind as they bow themselves down between before images of men which they worship, images of beasts which they worship, images of birds which they worship, and images of fish which they worship.
or fish-like beings. Now, I'm suggesting that this is a possibility. And I'm suggesting it because of the fact that he concludes this paradigm, this downward spiral of reverse creation, he concludes it with a moral declaration, a declaration of sin, a declaration of evil, a declaration of wickedness. And he associates that wickedness with the stumbling blocks, which Ezekiel clearly indicates is idolatry. Makes perfect sense in the era of Zephaniah, in the era of Judah's history that we're considering in the 7th century B.C. Now, I'm not dogmatic about my suggestion, but I think it makes sense. This is not only a reverse nature paradigm, this is a degeneration moral paradigm. And the two are mirrors of one another. Time for your break. There are lots of cookies back there. Go ahead, David. Question before we break. Uh, this is quite remedial, and I think I may have asked you this before, but with the initial verses being eschatological and the next section about uh, Judah's destruction, uh, it seems to me that we clearly have conflation of prophecy here. My question is, uh, at the time, did Jewish scholars understand contemplation of prophecy? Or? <laughs> uh, that's impossible to answer, <laughs> uh, particularly if we're thinking about uh, the, the period of Zephaniah. Um, whether they understood it or not, I believe that it is in the text by divine inspiration. And I'll try to make that clear at the end of our second period tonight. Cookies are on. We're at the point in the outline on page two of progressive or perhaps regressive patterns. And you'll notice that I have a number one in parenthesis underneath that heading, and you'll notice on page three of the handout, there's a number two. So there are at least two potential progressive or regressive patterns that we want to observe. And here, we're going to see a little more of the skill or artistry of the prophet in the original Hebrew. What you have there in verse three and remember, you read Hebrew from right to left. You have the word for man in Hebrew, which is Adam. That's how you pronounce those uh, forms uh, on the sheet in front of you. Then you'll notice uh, the second uh, way that Zephaniah uh, uses this term is he says, Ha-Adam. And the third way he uses this term is actually uh, related to the word earth, ha adama. Now, what you had just heard, Adam, ha Adam, ha adama, is a pun. It is a play on a root or a word to echo or assign different meanings. 
Here you can see Adam, which means man, Ha-Adam, which means the man, and Ha-Adama, which means the earth. He's playing on the sound, he's playing on the form, he's playing on the assonance, and he's also playing on a progression. As you look at those three, one, two, three, numbered on your sheet, what progression is he doing? Do you see the progression? What is it? Don't be shy. You can only be wrong. Marge? I don't know if this is it, but things are added. Things are added. What's he doing each time he goes, each time you go on from one to two and from two to three? What's he doing, Marge? He puts another He puts another letter. He adds another letter. Yes. Each time he adds a letter to expand or extend the pun. Now, why does he do, why is he doing this? Because he's making a theological point. Remember that in Genesis 2-7, man is taken or made from the earth, Adama. The very same word that Zephaniah uses twice in verse 2 and 3. So, Adama, Genesis 2-7 is the material from which Adam is made. Man is made from the earth. But in Zephaniah 1.3, as we pointed out, we have a reverse paradigm. Adam, which appears first in verse 3, is going to return to the earth, Adamah, back to that from which he came, a reverse vector. So the order in which he uses the form in verse 3 is a reverse order intended to underscore the reversal of man's creation. He who was made from Adama, Adam from Adama, is going to go back to Adama. Now, if we take verses 2 and 3 together, we have a much more extensive pattern, progression or regression, as the case may be. If we write out the occurrence, the occurrence of Adama, which occurs first in verse 2, and then Adam and Ha-Adam in verse 3, and Ha-Adama in the end of verse 3, we notice that we have man, Adam, and Ha-Adam, man, the man, sandwiched or bracketed between his origin, Ha-Adama, the earth. In other words, the inversion that this uh, layout, this pattern suggests, is a reversal from the earth to man and from the man back to the earth. Ha-Adam to Adam Ha Adam Ha Adama to Adam Ha Adam to Ha Adama. The 
The sequence is not accidental. The sequence is intentional. It is a punned theological intentional reversal. He is showing that what God did to man in the beginning, making him from Ha'adama, he is going to reverse. Adam is going to go back to Ha'adama. Now, we could also line this up in another uh, structural paradigm. In other words, we could separate Adam and Ha'adam in that uh, first series of uh, words where we bracket Ha'adama around Ha'adam with the arrow to Ha'adam. We could line this up differently. We could line up Ha'adam and label it letter A. We could then bring Adam underneath it and label it B. Then Ha'adam, similar to Adam, underneath it, B prime, and Ha'adama parallel to Ha'adam above A prime. If we did it that way, what kind of a structural paradigm would we have? We wouldn't have a mere sandwich paradigm as we had in the first one. This last paradigm would be a what? <laughs> Anyone? It is a chiasm. It is a chiasm. Spelled C-H-I-A-S-M. A chiasm. <laughs> Now, you notice that the chiasm reverses itself. So, Ha'adama goes to Adam. Adam continues and reverses to Ha'adama. A, B, B prime, A prime. It's like the Greek letter chi, the X of the Greek language. A, B, B prime, A prime the X of the pivot. Chiasm from chi, C-H-I, the Greek letter which looks like an X in Christmas. Xmas, taking the initial X of Christ, Christos, in the New Testament and using it as an abbreviation. There's nothing irreverent about it. It's just simply a theological shorthand. Any questions about that? In other words, the structure of the use of the pun on the word Adam is a theological pattern. It emphasizes the reversal of man's origin, and he does it in a masterful way. He lays it out from the earth to man, from man back to the earth. Perfect symmetrical style whether you want to call it a sandwich device or whether you want to call it a chiastic device. These structures are not just interesting things to see and lay out, nice designs that Denison comes up with. These structures are in the text, and they're in the text for theological purposes. Zephaniah intended to do this. He wrote it this way. He wrote it as a chiastic or a sandwich device, and he did it because he was emphasizing the theological dimension of this reversal.
So there's theology in structure. There's theology in Hebrew word structure. This is brilliant literary artistry. All right, now on to the last page. Page three and the second pattern. Raising the question of whether these are progressive or regressive, or we could even say degressive structural paradigms. I'm going to focus on verse 3 here. We've already done some of this, so some of it's going to be repetition, but we want to analyze it a little more carefully this time, analyze it structurally. Verse 3 begins with what verb? Anyone? Remove or sweep away. Okay, so remove plus what? Blank and blank. What? First, blank and blank. He's going to remove what? First of all, he says, I'm going to remove man and beast. All right, so there's our first line. Remove man and beast. Remove the verb plus man and beast. Okay, then he uses the word remove again, doesn't he, in verse 3. And what follows after that? Birds, 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 look at the text, birds of the heavens or birds of the air and fish, fish of the sea, okay? So, number two on your sheet, remove plus birds, air and fish, sea. Finally, the parenthesis in number three That is, the verb is understood because there's no verb explicitly there, followed by stumbling blocks. Okay, now that's just one line there, stumbling blocks or ruins. And those stumbling blocks are idols, remember. And then the second blank there, after stumbling blocks, I'm going to have you write in these letters, E-T-H. E-T-H, because that's what the Hebrew reads. S. It's usually the sign of the direct object in the Hebrew language. It's not necessary that you worry too much about that. Uh, We'll discuss uh, what the implication is here in a moment, but just write that in. So S, and then the third blank there would be what? Going to remove the stumbling blocks with the wicked. So wicked. And now he uses a new verb. Cut off. Okay. Now, the second line there after cut off, I want you to write in S again, E-T-H. Here it definitely is the sign of the direct object. And what's the last word? Who's he going to cut off? Man. All right, now, what do you see there? You filled in number one, remove man and beast. Number two, remove birds, air, and fish, sea. By number three, do you see the progression? What's he done? 
at your blank. Look at your underlines. Okay? Number one, after the verb, how many underlines do you have? You have two. Okay? Separated by the conjunction and. After uh, number two, after the word remove, how many underlines do you have? Four. So, he actually added one in each clause before the before and after the end, didn't he? So, he added air after birds, and he added sea after fish. <clears throat> he added one more word in each of those uh, conjunctive clauses. And in number three, he added one more word again. So that we have one word after remove and one word after and in number one. We have two words after remove and two words after, uh, after and in verse two. We have three words after no verb, verb understood in uh, number three and three words after the and in number three. This is a verbal progression. It's not a letter progression. We had a letter progression with Adam, Ha-Adam, Ha-Adama. Now understand that these are, are individual Hebrew words. Okay? Now, the ETH... The ETH, as I mentioned, is a sign of the direct object. However, with that phrase, stumbling blocks and wicked, it doesn't seem to make sense to say that stumbling blocks has a direct object. Stumbling blocks is a noun. It can't have its own direct object. So ETH here is uh, regarded as being used as a preposition. So some of your translations have with, stumbling blocks with the wicked. That is a possibility. That is the majority understanding of the scholars and the translations. However, it is conceivable that the S is here a sign of an appositive. That is, that the stumbling blocks are themselves wicked, or the stumbling blocks are themselves that which is the occasion of wickedness. In other words, wicked is in opposition to stumbling blocks, and the S is a kind of a sign of that he is repeating it, but he's repeating it by way of an object in apposition to the previous noun. Now, none of the scholars have suggested that. That's Denison's original. I'm no Hebrew scholar or grammarian, but my guess is as plausible as their guess in this sense, namely, S is always or usually the sign of the direct object. It is rarely used as a preposition. So what they've done in resorting to the preposition here is to solve a conundrum. Good for them if they're right. But it's possible that the sign of the direct object here is being used positively. That is, defining more of what stumbling blocks are. Possible. Possible. <clears throat> now, in the second clause, cut off F the man, there's no question about the fact that the man is the direct object of the verb cut off. So the S is used, is used properly here in Hebrew grammar. It is the sign of the direct object. Now, I know you didn't come here to learn Hebrew grammar tonight. However, you understand what is behind solving some of the difficulty of translating these two verses. 
These two verses are a great challenge to Hebrew scholars. Okay? I'm giving you the kind of dumbed-down version, or at least the bottom line of what, in my opinion, is at stake. I'm adding to it some of these rhetorical and structural uh, uh, and symmetrical flourishes, but nonetheless, the, the Hebrew style here is extremely complex, and it challenges the best of Hebrew scholars. Therefore, there are honest difficulties here. So, we're making the best on the basis of our judgment, comparing Scripture with Scripture in order to uh, translate or properly represent what Zephaniah is saying in these two verses. Randy. Yeah, on the previous page, you, you said that the stumbling block was, was idols or idolatry. So, it couldn't be an idol and a man, could it? No, uh, the... The man is at the end of that clause. He's going to cut off man. So the, the clause on the other side of the conjunction and is stumbling blocks, which we've already seen from Ezekiel 14.3. The stumbling block is idolatry. So that's understood. The stumbling blocks with the wicked or the wicked themselves as participating in this stumbling block. Possibly. All right, now, notice the three lines in this poetic sequence that we used earlier on the second page of the outline. What is A? I will remove man and beast. And what is more than A is B? I will remove birds of the air and fish of the sea. And what is more than A and B, namely C, I will remove, understood, idols with the wicked or idols, namely the wicked, as an appositive, and I will cut off man, direct object. A full and thoroughgoing rhetorical and literary reversal of the created order. The progression here is a progression which amounts to a degression. A degression, because... No, degression. Degression, look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary. Degression is a legitimate English word. Progression and the opposite is degression. Okay? So, what we have here is the bottom line at the end of verse 3 is man's moral character. The idolatry is spinning downward as an indication or a reflection of man's degressed, degenerate moral character. That's the reason the downward spiral ends up with man, wicked, man, idolatrous, man himself bowing down before these stumbling blocks. This is the indictment that all of the prophets lodge against the children of Israel. Zephaniah, no different, only his unique way of doing it rhetorically and structurally here underscores this reversal of creation, decreation, degeneration, degression. This is a emphatic downward spiral vividly portrayed in the language of these two verses. All right, well, let's summarize 
the theological point. Zephaniah receives God's word that man, the crown of creation, he is first in verse 3a. He is first. Adam. Man, the crown of creation, man will be removed from all creation. Earth, out of which man was made, will receive man cut off from that earth out of which he was made. The last phrase in verse 3e is ha'adamah. Man consigned to the darkness. Darkness as the darkness on the face of the deep. The empty, formless, inky, black void on the face of the deep. The void of darkness before anything was formed on the face of the earth. In truth, a decreation, declares the Lord, verse 2. Verily, an uncreation, says the Lord, verse 3. A reverse creation which returns all creation to the protological state the eschatological inversion collapsing, removing, expunging all things into darkness. Devastation unto death. Abolition to non-existence. To no life in this world. To tohu wabohu. To emptiness and obliteration to dissolution and ruination, to eradication and deletion. No created existence in this earthly arena. Nothing but eternal darkness and the void of obliteration, eradication from this dimension. Is Zephaniah projecting the consummate eschatological inversion, the ultimate eschatological uncreation, the final once and for all decreation of all created things? Is he? Jesus suggests that he is. Yes. Jesus suggests that he is. For Jesus echoes Zephaniah's words in his own words in Matthew 13, 41. Jesus rehearses the words of Zephaniah 1, 3 in Matthew 13, 41 and 42. This is what he says. This is what Jesus says. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. 
Jesus the prophet echoes Zephaniah the prophet. Well, you would say, what is the point of declaring a consummate inversion in the days of Josiah, king of Judah? What's the point of a consummate inversion in the 7th century B.C.? And the answer, so that the generation of Judah in Josiah's day will receive a foretaste of that decreation. Well, how will they experience that? How they will experience, how will they experience a foretaste of God's uncreation of the creation? In 586 B.C., their world, the world of their creation will be inverted. The world of their creation will be undone. The world of their creation will be raised, ruined, thoroughly devastated. They will experience not progression, but degression. No, that day of the Lord, 586 B.C., will not be the consummate uncreation, as the Noahic flood was not. But in that day of the Lord, 586 B.C., God will project the ultimate judgment of that great and final day. He will project it from a day in Judah's time and space, 586 B.C. The Lord will project the consummate day in a temporal day in time and space. A temporal day which will prophesy a day when time and space will be destroyed. When time and space will be no more. When time and space will be blacked out. Total and eternal darkness as it was before the beginning. As it was before the beginning, so it shall be after the end. When God, the Lord of Zephaniah, God, the Lord of Jesus of Nazareth, when God, the Lord, completely removes all things and nothing will remain to man and beast, bird and fish, the wicked, moral degenerates. Nothing will remain save black, pitch black darkness. Darkness which might be felt forever and ever and ever. Dark world without end. Any questions or comments that you may have? Yes, David? So I'm going to go out on a limb here. I expect I'll hear the rap song. Um, Mine's electric. Um, I believe Isaiah 45, 18 says, I, the Lord, created 
is, was, or became I don't think so. I think it's describing the formless nature of the earth out of which God does form the various elements of the created order as we know them. And I think that what Isaiah is uh, is testifying to is it was not his intention to leave it in the state of tohu wabohu. He was going to, in fact, uh, uh, let the dry land appear and let the, the fish of the sea appear and the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field, etc., but that uh, declaration in Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, the tohu wabohu in the Hebrew, is an indication that it was in that formless, undifferentiated state as he originally spoke it into being. And then he begins to differentiate or distinguish or separate the various aspects of it. In other words, he's not going to leave it that way. But he's going to turn it back to that. At the end, he's going to reverse that pattern. And that is what, in my opinion, Zephaniah is suggesting here with this decreation. Keep in mind that Zephaniah, as we pointed out uh, a couple of times ago, uh, Zephaniah is this prophet with the search lamp. The image of light in Zephaniah is crucial to the message that he delivers. And the darkness, the moral degenerate darkness of the idolatry of Judah in his day is prototypical of an everlasting pitch-black eternity of night. No light in that arena. I trust that you are sons and daughters of the light. And you do not love darkness rather than light. Scott. Scott. I am going to make it appear. Now, one of my uh, approaches to this book is to show the mirror reflection of his lamp. Okay, And consequently, since that image is crucial to this first chapter, verse 12 particularly, and in iconography, as I mentioned before, Zephaniah is also painted as carrying a lamp through the streets of Jerusalem. I think that that image... Uh, gives us a uh, persona of the prophet. And consequently, he is working out of the light which he has from God to shine upon his time. And he finds very little reflection, mirror light in response. Randy? He did. He was. They stole it from the Hebrews. I wouldn't know anything about the corrupt Led Zeppelin. A little modern tidbit there. Uh, we don't need that kind of modern tidbit.
Any other questions or comments, desultory or not, banned or not? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the amazing gift of the use of language and imagery which you gave to Zephaniah. And though we do not know the origin of it in his own background of study or exposure to education and to stylistic uh, patterns, even scrolls, nonetheless, Lord, we realize that he was learned or trained in the knowledge that would serve your purposes. And it all comes out in this beautiful Hebrew prophetic work. Yes, your spirit worked upon his heart and mind and upon his skill with his Hebrew pen. And Lord, you used all of that background in his career to make this short prophecy bubble and, and, and overflow with power of imagery and with a drama that indeed attracts us to itself. Will you help us, Lord, then to realize that you are speaking into the darkness of the moral degeneration of the human soul. And in that speech, you are calling men to turn to the light and to walk in the presence of him who is the light of the world, your beloved son, in whom there is no darkness at all evermore. We bless you for him and for the fact that he indeed was the Lord of the prophet Zephaniah and the answer to Zephaniah's lamplight. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.